0: Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future.
1: Many of us still get a chill running down our spines when we hear about bank failures and bailouts. After all, it was less than 15 years ago when we went through one of the worst economic disasters in history, in institutions like Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, AIG, and others became famous for the wrong reasons. The Great Recession took years to recover from, and some of its effects can still be felt to this day. So in March, when several banks collapsed in what were the largest bank failures since that financial crisis, you'll forgive some of us from getting a bad sense of deja vu. This time, it's not mortgage-backed securities or the housing market driving the collapse. Instead, it's the tech sector. Silicon Valley Bank, the largest institution to go bust in March, served a large number of tech startups while other failed banks, such as Silvergate Bank and Signature Bank, were known as go-to institutions for the cryptocurrency industry. The government quickly moved to intervene, with President Joe Biden assuring the public that our banking system is safe, while promising customers will be made whole. He also called for new banking rules and tighter regulations. My name is Victor Lee, and I'm Assistant Managing Editor for the ABA Journal. Joining me on today's episode of the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast is Nathan Seiler, partner at the AmLaw 100 firm Ballard Spar. Nathan serves as chair of the firm's business and transactions department, and he's here to make sense of this whole thing. Welcome to the show, Nathan.
2: Thanks, Victor. Appreciate you having me.
1: Great. Um, So tell me a little bit bit about yourself. Uh, What made you decide to become a lawyer and what drew you to the financial end of things?
2: Yes. So so education was always really important for me growing up. Uh, My mom inspired me in that way as a a seasoned educator herself. And so I always thought I'd go to law school, Um, ended up going to law school in uh, Chicago at Northwestern. And what was really interesting, when you, when you go to law school, you feel like you're going back to, uh, to high school. You get a lot less choices. Uh, the world gets a lot smaller than your college experience. So so many of your classes are dictated to you, et cetera. But uh, what I enjoyed about Northwestern is we got to uh, pick a couple of uh, electives, which was rare. And so uh, I took contracts, which was one of our basic classes, uh, really enjoyed that side of things, um, enjoyed you know, the, the law behind contracts. And then I took corporations. Uh, in my second semester and, and really liked learning about fiduciary duties, M&A transactions and those things. And kind of from that point on, I was I was hooked, um, realizing that there was a transactional side to things. And another good thing about law school was uh, being in Chicago, we had a lot of great adjunct professors that were full-time practicing uh, attorneys. And so, you know, we got to see from the trenches what they were experiencing it was very kind of practical hands-on and then one of the other things that the school looked at was uh diversity of experience work experience diversity of geography and and just the students as a whole so having classmates that were from a whole you know a bunch of different backgrounds different schools some had worked in the past as investment bankers and others really was just it was a great experience to kind of learn and so um, from that point on i was was interested in the corporate side of things um, after graduating uh, law school, took a look at, um, you know, where my wife and I wanted to live. And we really liked Colorado. It was an emerging, um, you know, kind of market uh, within our country. Um, there was a lot of venture dollars that had been invested in Colorado. And the, the ecosystem seemed to be on, on the rise, kind of one of the next Silicon Valley's If you will. So started started practice there and have been focused uh, since that time in 2000 on emerging companies, venture capital. So working with companies throughout their their life cycles, raising funds outside general counsel to them and then do a lot of M&A work. A lot of that's on the sell side, uh, working with those those companies.
1: Well, that's funny that you mentioned law school being like high school in a lot of ways. I, I always got that vibe as well because you're in the same building. You see the same people all the time. And plus for us, we had like rows of lockers that we were assigned to. So, um, so you know, it was very much sort of like that. Like, okay, you go to your locker in the morning, put your books away, and you see the same people.
2: Yeah, you, you really feel like you've stepped back in life. I mean, the, the idea was this supposed to be the, the next uh, next step in taking responsibility, but that felt anything but. <laughs>
1: Well, obviously, you know, you, you've made quite a bit of yourself since then and being a partner at Spar and whatnot. So how would you describe your practice? What kind of clients do you service and what kind of work do you do for them?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, so my clients, I, I work with a lot of emerging companies, right, and work with them throughout their life cycle. So uh, there's a lot of technology companies, a lot of SaaS companies, um, could be clean technology, work with companies in the life sciences industry, whether it's medical device or, you know, biotech, telehealth, those those types of things. So a number of different industries. And, and my practice really is, you know, starting with uh, a couple of folks in the proverbial garage, right, with an idea, forming the company and then, you know, walking them through their life. Right. So uh, attend a lot of board meetings, um, get to know the investors, work with them through their investment rounds and uh you know being able to work in a number of different industries and at different you know times in a company's life cycle and through different economic cycles i think helps us to be better practitioners kind of help them see around corners. And uh, yeah, so a big part of my practice is helping people through the day to day, helping them, you know, raise rounds. And then, um, you know, the other half, like I said, is is doing M&A. So it's exits. uh, When the companies come into uh, into the into life, the idea is not that they're typically not that they're going to have that uh, company forever. But, you know, the idea is to have some kind of liquidity event, either an IPO or an an M&A transaction. And what we do is we start with the end in mind. We kick it off with, you know, thinking about precedential value when you do things, precedential value on terms, um, you know, realizing that you get more complexity as you go along. And the idea is to keep things as simple as, as possible for as long as possible so that once uh, things start kind of stacking on top of each other, you still got a fairly nimble um, enterprise. So, So, yeah, that's kind of my practice in a nutshell.
1: Gotcha. So let's talk about some of these bank failures. Let's focus on, I guess, first on Silicon Valley Bank because they were the largest one. It kind of kickstarted all this. So how and why did that bank fail?
2: If you look at Silicon Valley Bank, and, and again, this is coming from a corporate and securities uh, attorney's viewpoint. I've, I've got banking partners that could give you a little bit more of kind of the nitty gritty. But but big picture, SVB, if you go back, you know, they'd been around for a long time and really were the bank for the innovation economy, right? So they they represented, or I guess, had customers that were many, many emerging companies, and many of the in, the investors that uh, you know back those companies. And so, over the last several years, we've seen kind of unprecedented growth in the size of rounds, the number of of companies that have become unicorns, right? Big funding rounds. And when that money, you know, gets raised by a company, um, you know, they need to have a bank. And they need a place to to put that money. And Silicon Valley Bank, as as much as anybody in the venture community, was the bank that that people used. And so you saw a lot of growth in the overall size of of the deposits, right, that uh, Silicon Valley Bank had as more and more rounds were getting raised, larger rounds. And so Silicon Valley Bank needed to do something with that money. So they do have a lending arm um they will do they will make loans but if you work with companies throughout the life cycle the very early stage companies aren't going to be folks that you're going to make loans to right i mean it's too uh too much of a gamble they you know maybe have very nascent traction in revenue and other things and so a lot of those aren't going to be be, you know, places for loans, the later companies will be. Um, so they needed to make investments and they made their investments in a lot of, um, you know, long-term bonds. Um, they needed to, to find a place to do that. They did that. And those those bonds were, um, a lot of that were mortgage securities, could be treasuries, but they had very low interest rates, right? Which was a sign of the time. And then as you move forward and, and we, you know, are running into issues with inflation and the Fed's taking steps to tamp down that inflation by raising interest rates. Uh, you start seeing a mismatch, right? So where I had a, a batch of, um, you know, mortgage securities that were, you know, sub three percent and that looked okay, in, in this world that's not as attractive, of an investment, right? So the value of those bonds are going down. At the same time, you, you see that you know the funding spigot for a lot of companies is slowed down, right? So so companies aren't raising as many rounds. They aren't raising as many large rounds. And and it, when I'm an emerging company and I raise uh, a round of funding, I'm doing so to grow my business. So, you know, if I raise a $10 million Series A, I have that $10 million, but I'm going to be deploying that money over time, right? And that's considered my quote unquote burn. And I'm using my burn to, you know, pay for my employees. I'm using it for my facilities. I'm using it for my you know, cloud computing and and other things. So so those monies you know get spent and keep going down and down. And I think what Silicon Valley Bank saw was that the size of their deposits um, were going down and and the funnel wasn't getting refilled as much with with financing. So if you look at their SEC filings, I think they you know for their deposit amount dropped about sixteen billion, you know over the course between the end of, of twenty one and the end of twenty two. And so, as as people are spending more money and taking their money out, right, the the bank needs to come up with liquidity for that. And as as that was continuing, the way that they were looking for liquidity was to sell those securities, uh, but those securities had a lower value uh, associated with them. So, um, for instance, they they sold a a big bunch of those securities and um, took about a $1.8 billion loss on that. And they put out uh, a notice to the investors... You know, so, so it's a publicly traded bank, right? So they're putting out a notice that they plan to do a, a stock sale to uh, to go ahead and fill, you know, the void that they have. And they had a I think General Atlantic was going to come in um, and they were doing, you know, stock sale for for this. But that really spooked uh, spooked the world to see that they had, you know, this amount of losses. And so quickly their stock price, you know, plummeted. And then that became, you know, a situation where a lot of people got really nervous. Um, and when you're looking at a bank and you look at what happens, um, you know, it really was just the proverbial run on the bank from from that point on.
1: Yeah, it seems like once one of the dominoes falls, it's very easy for all the other ones to fall. And then, and then at that point, then, you know, you're pretty much you're pretty much done at that point. right?
2: Yeah. It, so if we look at SVB, they didn't have, you know, and, and I think we're going to talk about this in a little bit, you know, the 2007, 2008 economic crisis that we ran into, th- that was a situation where, you know, lots of banks had bad assets, right? They had bad assets because they had loans, uh, a lot of mortgages that were, you know, to uncreditworthy you know, uh, parties, borrowers, uh, because they weren't doing their diligence. Uh, that wasn't the case here. They, they had good, the good assets. They just had a mismatch in those assets. And the value of those assets was was moving down because of because of interest rates. And then, you know, what you see happen once people start to get spooked, you want to get your money out of the bank, right, as, as quickly as you can. And, and the bank run is really kind of the proverbial um, prisoner's dilemma, right? So if everybody stayed in and everybody was fine, I think the bank would have been fine. They would have, you know, been able to, to raise some funds and keep going. It wasn't that, you know, everything was imploding. But once people start leaving, right, and they had you know, billions upon billions of dollars coming out, then everybody's best interest is to get out as as quickly as you can. Um, And when you compare this type of a of a bank run to, you know, what happened in, you know, the uh, the the roaring 20s, et cetera, with the stock market crash and things, you you don't need to go to the bank. You don't need to stand in those long lines and, um, you know, wait to 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 take your deposits out. You can do it with one swipe. Of, uh, of, a, of a, you know, computer key and and the money's gone.
1: What about like like Signature and, and Silvergate banks? Was it some, something similar in, in that sense as, as to why they failed?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they're, and, and I'm more familiar with SVB than, than the other two, but I think, again, what you have is you have a lot of exposure to, to crypto, the value of that crypto was going down, so people had to take their, you know, money out as well, and it was kind of another similar situation.
1: All right, before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
0: If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple.
1: And we're back. So you started to talk a little bit about this before the break, but I wanted to kind of drill down a little, on this a little bit. So uh, obviously, you know, Talking about the two thousand seven two thousand eight financial crisis, are there echoes to that for you, or is this a different phenomenon? Should we should we be concerned about a larger financial crisis coming down the pipes?
2: There are echoes to that in that you've got bank failures. Um, there are echoes to that in that I think this you know SVB was the second largest bank failure that we've had on record. So so certainly that you know has your antenna. But uh, I think a lot of the fundamental causes are are different. If you go back to two thousand seven two thousand eight. What was going on there. Again, a lot of that dealt with, um, you know, issues in the mortgage industry, problems with um, the underlying value of those uh, mortgages and those those assets that uh, had been, you know, collateralized and put together in, in securitized, you know, bundles that people had, had purchased and they had fundamental problems. Uh, I go back to, you know, like 2002, 2003, when I bought my first home. I remember going to, you know, Meet with the the lender and kind of walking through the process totally new to me right i mean i'm a I'm a young attorney at that time, buying my first house. I have views on what I can afford and what i'm comfortable with I'm talking to the lenders and their view is, oh, you could get a house for this much, or, you know, you could get this this amount of mortgage. And I'm like, I don't think I'd really be particularly comfortable <laughs> with that. And what was interesting to me is I felt like these are the gatekeepers that are telling me that I could take a lot more risks uh, than I personally felt comfortable with. Now, y- you might say, look, you're an attorney, you're probably pretty risk averse, but but that was kind of, a, you know, a sign to me what was what was going on. And then as more stories kind of, you know, went out, uh, went around with, um, you know, RoboSign and everything else you really had a huge you know situation where banks were were all collapsing based upon you know problems fundamental problems with their assets and then you know the whole thing kind of teetered I, here i think it is you know really more focused at, at this point in time to svb and those that have you know kind of that kind of focus in the tech sector where they're they're seeing what's Uh, what's going on. If you take a look at SVB, again, I think that's almost like it's an index fund for that particular thing, which can be great, right? If you're very focused on a particular industry, then you can go up with that industry. Same time, you can go go down with that industry. But but I think at this point, it's really pretty focused on on that. I know that uh, as we looked at things unfolding, there was a lot of questions that we had to face, a lot of questions that our clients had about what would they have access to. And and ultimately, you know, the the Fed, the FDIC, I mean, they came out with the joint statement said, look, everybody will have access to their their full amount of their deposit accounts, which which took a lot of the the pressure off but that wasn't the same as kind of the bailouts that that we needed to do it wasn't as pervasive uh, of a situation and and since that time you know there were a lot of lessons that are learned. Some some of this is kind of interesting, right? If you can even go back to the advent of of socks. And so you know when when I started practice in 2000, we were dealing with the dot com boom and bust. Um, there were a lot of IPOs that were happening, and and then you had Enron hit, right? And and suddenly you come up with Sarbanes Oxley, where we're adding a lot more. of regulations on things well fraud was always illegal (laughs) it wasn't that (laughs) the the fraud was somehow okay and then we had had socks that stopped it right but we put regulations in place um so we could kind of suss those things out now that also increased the cost the compliance cost you know it made an ipo a lot less attractive of a of a liquidity event for folks for some period of time and and then we saw things kind of you know move the other way right where you have the um, emerging companies exceptions and kind of limiting some of the disclosures that you have. But but similar to that, right, when we have a big problem. So when we had the meltdown 2007, 2008, and we had Dodd-Frank, you know, we bolstered a lot of of the regulations around that to be able to, you know, kind of keep focus on what's going on. We had the CFPB was created to, you know, make sure consumers are being taken care of. I mean, in a lot of those loan situations, right, you had a lot of of consumers that were signing up for loans that they could never repay, but they didn't know because they trusted the gatekeepers. Um, So I think we're also in a different different position, a different situation than we were in 2007, 2008.
1: Gotcha. So you mentioned Dodd-Frank. I was curious because obviously, I mean, you know, at the time it was passed, it was like, you know, sort of the the spirit and meaning behind it. It was right after the, the financial meltdown and, and, you know, the feeling was, okay, we got to tighten things up. We got to fix the ship and we got to make sure this doesn't happen again and whatnot. Some of those rules have been relaxed in the years since and some regulations in general have been relaxed a little bit. I mean, did that play a role here or, or, or is that still to be seen?
2: You know, I'm probably not the person that's, you know, the the tip of the spear to be able to answer that specifically, but I don't think that, all of these things are a pendulum, right? I mean, what, what happens is we have an issue, we come up with regulation, then we realize if we swung the pendulum too far, um, then we try to kind of come back towards the middle. I, I think, you know, a lot of the easing of those regulations was coming back, you know, more towards the middle. Uh, there were probably was some some regulatory issues that we'll, we'll come up with um, with SVB or, or how we could have figured out, you know, what this risk looked like, but, but I don't know that it was those particular easings as much as it was kind of the confluence of, of events that SBB found itself in. And, you know, probably if they were going back, they would have had a different investment strategy um, and not locked themselves into long-term, you know, bonds that were ultimately ended up having really low interest rates. I think that was the fundamental thing. And that's happened with, you know, mismatch of investments is, toppled banks, you know, since the SNL crisis and way before that, through, through now. So I, I don't know we could say it was an easing of those regulations.
1: Yeah. I mean, cause I, uh, I read a little bit about, about just in preparation for this, just uh, talking about the, the uh, government bonds and whatnot. And I mean, I don't, I'm not a banking expert. Obviously I don't really know that much about it, but it seems like, it seems like government bonds are usually seen as like a safe uh, investment that, you know, always reliable. They're backed by the government. Uh, they're low yield, but they're like a good kind of, they're, they're good hedge for things, but also they're, you know, a safe investment for people if they don't want to like Gamble too much, so so it was a lot of it just out of, out of their control with like the interest rates and the inflation that you know that that, 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 that they kind of got like what seemed like a smart investment at the time. Oh, well, we're going to go this for these reliable bonds. then all of a sudden it becomes oh crap, we're holding these these worthless not worthless but like these these bonds that aren't worth as much as we thought they were.
2: Yeah, I think that was exactly the problem, right? I mean, so it's it's not a risky bond. You're not worried about um, default risk, right? But but because you don't have that risk, the the you know the interest rate on those. Um, is really quite low. You just go back to kind of finance 101, right? And it's uh, the cost of capital where it's, that's the risk-free rate. You go back to the government and you do like your cap M, um, you would assume like treasuries was your risk-free rate and then you would adjust for for risk. So yeah, not not bad assets that they have, but those assets, the value of those assets, I'm not worried about those defaulting, but in a world where you know sub 1% interest rates moves to, you know, twos, threes, fours, fives, and keeps moving up, you know, those bonds are worth a lot less. And I think you, you know, need to be on top of the changing um, economy, the changing, you know, tides. And, and it was the, the lack of addressing that maybe sooner rather than later, you know, found them in a, a pretty big hole.
1: And just talking about the banking, banking in general, like, are there, are there problems that you see that existed in 2007 and 2008 that still exist, that, that are still present today?
2: Not really that I run across, but, um, you know, my world, if we just go back to kind of my viewpoint is, is more one of um, helping um, my clients take out, you know, credit facilities with banks and then using banks for deposit accounts and, and raising equity on the side. So, you know, not as much in, in those particular trenches, but no, I wouldn't say so. All right. Uh, let's take a quick
1: break for another word from our sponsor. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. And we're back. So, without violating any client confidentialities or whatnot, I mean, did, did you have a lot of? Uh, did your firm have a lot of clients with exposure to the either the SVB failure or the other bank failures? And and how did you deal with uh you know calls like how did you deal with those calls from from people if you did have have clients in that area?
2: Yes. So the situation with SVB, you know, transpired very quickly. Right. We we went from uh, a notice on a, a Wednesday that they're going to do their stock raise to stock price plummeting. Um, a lot of people starting to, to pull money out on you know, Thursday to Friday, um, where the, the FDIC stepped in and, and took control of things very quick that that, that happened. And, and usually when you have a bank failure, the FDIC, they will step in, but they usually step in over a weekend. Um, it's, it's not as typical that they step in in the middle of a weekday, right? And they, they stepped in fairly early on Friday. Uh, so all of this was happening, you know, very quickly, very real time, and posed a lot of of issues that companies hadn't been thinking about. So, so let's go back to our example of kind of the typical venture-backed company, right? That that is a is one of the banking clients for SVB. So, so they've raised their ten million dollars Series A. And they know, right, that they're going to be burning money, right? They they have, when they have their monthly board meetings, they go through, here's what our burn is, you know, we're going to be out of cash at this particular time. Um, they start planning in advance um, when they're going to do, need to do another fundraise. What is that going to look like? What milestones are they going to hit? Um, do they have their headcount and things all kind of right size for that? So, So those are all planned, right? And then sometimes when you start running out of money, it can be a difficult situation. And we certainly saw that. At the end of the dot-com boom and bust cycle, we had a lot of companies that you know, were, were having to do financings on pretty perilous terms, and they were running out of, out of funds, uh, passing the hat amongst themselves, saw the same thing in 2007, 2008, 2009, 10. But, but here, you know, the, the issue, the liquidity problem that was coming up was, was not that you weren't able to find new financing, it's that you wouldn't have access to your bank account right and and access to your bank account that is your lifeline your bank account is is you know going to be tethered to your payroll provider you have to make payroll you're paying your you know paying all of your creditors off uh with that you're paying your vendors all of those types of things so so suddenly you're facing you know the first question was there's a lot of buzz out there you know people are leaving should i leave what what should i do right and and we had We had clients that were you know coming to us and saying i'm hearing things about um silicon valley bank or i'm hearing things from my investors who were on the board and and so you know people had to make the decision could they could they get their money out quickly and should they get their money out quickly a lot of that direction was you know folks trying to do what they could to get get their cash out if you had a loan with SVB, one of their typical terms, a typical of a lot of lenders is that you have to have all of your banking relationship with them. Or if you were an early company, you know, you maybe only had one bank relationship. So, so now you're dealing with a liquidity crisis that you weren't planning on because, yes, you're looking at cash and you know you're going to be out of cash at some point, but that's the horizon is suddenly very quickly. But, you know, can you open a new bank account? Are you going to violate the terms of your existing, you know, loan agreements? If you can't get your money out, what's going to happen? So, so yeah, I mean, it was a very, very harrowing, you know, several days um, from we had, you know, companies that were able to get all their money out. Um, they would utilize trust accounts or custodial accounts of. Um, some of their investors and then having to set up new banks, new bank relationships. And, you know, that doesn't happen overnight these days, right, with the uh, know your customer rules and other things to so some that, you know, they weren't able to get get their money out. And what would I have access to? And what does what does this mean? Um, so we, you know, fielded a lot of calls from a lot of clients and tried to give them, you know, direction on the things that they should be thinking about. And it wasn't a situation Right. So let's go back to the premise. Right. So so we have a bank failure. We have FDIC insurance. You're you know going to get access to two hundred and fifty thousand. But two hundred fifty thousand for a company that's got payroll of over a million that's, you know, going to come up in the middle of the week is, is not going to be enough. But, you know, at some point you're going to get your money back. So we had folks that were you know discussing with their investors, putting together very quick bridge loans to try to be able to, to hit payroll and, and other things. And then you have to think about if I can't go ahead and, and get uh, those funds raised in the times, do I need to furlough my employees? There's a lot of laws that are implicated, right, around failure to, to make payroll. Um, there's a lot of laws that are implemented around furloughs and those types of things. So a number of different issues um, popped up. And, and I think one of the things that we wanted to do was was get the word out both internally uh, to all the the other attorneys at Ballard and then get those out to our clients and then, you know, get get the word out outside of that just to understand, like, what does this bank failure mean? You know, what will I have access to? What won't I have access to? What types of things should I be thinking about? How does this process unfold? So, yeah, it was uh, really kind of a triage situation. And then, you know, you get to Sunday and because this happened so, so quickly, what the FDIC will do is is try to find a buyer for these assets, right? And this, this, again, is a was an interesting asset, but because it happened so quickly, there wasn't a lot of time, right? You didn't see it happening, so there wasn't a lot of time to, to find a, a buyer. They didn't end up finding a buyer, you know, over that that weekend, but they were able to take a look at those assets and say, look, you'll have access to your full deposit account. So that, that relieved a lot of kind of the near-term pressure, but, you know, still raises a lot of issues about what do you do with your banking, you know, relationships and are all is all of your money in deposit accounts. And there's different ways that you can you can address those things through like, a, you know, money market mutual funds and having a sweep account. Um, that's a different situation. And those funds are considered your funds. And the bank is now the custodian of those funds. But those aren't deposit accounts. Right. So if if they're not subject to that two hundred fifty thousand. Um, limitation on insurance, but you might have problems being able to access those.
1: Yeah, it seems like it's a pretty, it's almost like a full time job keeping up with all the developments and then yeah. getting it, getting the word out and whatnot. So, uh, how did the firm set up, like, as far as like, you know, being able to like keep tabs on the news, write these alerts, um, you know, get get the news out there, you know, update update the website to make sure everything's looking good? How much work goes into that?
2: There was a ton of work that, that went into it as really kind of a multi disciplinary uh, approach to things. So, as we started, you know, hearing from clients and, and the concerns, you know, on Thursday morning, not only would we be hearing from clients, hearing from investors, we were hearing from other banks that uh, were sending stuff. Hey, I know you work with a lot of people that might be SVB customers. Uh, our <laughs> bank's always good. <laughs> so, so, so we said, okay, well, I don't know how, you know, how bad this thing is going to get, but it could get pretty bad. And a lot of people are trying to do stuff. So we put together, you know, in pretty quick order, an internal task force. Com- comprised of, of, you know, myself and a couple of others that do emerging companies, venture capital, right? So we we have a lot of the clients that do that. We have we have banking experts that do, you know, bank regulatory work and, and bank M&A. Um, and then we brought in, uh, you know, our public company, you know, folks as well, because they're going to have reporting requirements that, that are around this, you know, what's their exposure to SVB? Are they going to be able to make their payroll, um, e- et cetera? And then, you know, also looped in, Um, some of our other, you know, financial services experts and then some things on the employment side. So really got everybody, you know, we set up some meetings internally, like what's going on, what do we know? Walk through this, what was the playbook, right? Back in, in 2007, 2008, when there were the bank failures, how did this play out? What does this mean for our clients? And then we put together just a number of, you know, high level bullets that just kind of played out. Like these are the nuts and bolts of what you need to know if your bank has failed. What you'll have access to. These are the you know types of things. So we sent that out um, as quickly as we could, just to all of the attorneys within the firm. And then we started working in earnest on being able to put out an FAQ style for our clients that we could send you know to our client mailing list, but also you know put out as just a general client alert so people could understand. What was going on, and because this was happening so quickly, you know, the, the quicker we could do it, the, the the better it was, and the more important it was for folks as they're going into the weekend and trying to figure out you know, what are they going to do on Monday from a from a you know just kind of a reality standpoint. And one of the benefits that we had as Ballard, you know, kind of having the platform that we have, is we have all of those specialties in house, and so we were able to to kind of address and field those. And and we did hear from, you know, a number of different companies over the weekend that maybe worked with a boutique firm that had done, you know, a lot of their corporate stuff, but don't have banking experts um, just to, you know, they'd reach out and, hey, how does this work? And we just walk them through it. They, they may or may not become clients, but the idea was to to help them just understand kind of the nuts and bolts and how they need to be thinking about things.
1: Gotcha. So looking forward, what kind of regulations and rules might we realistically see from the federal government?
2: I think one of the things that we're going to have to take a look at is, you know, what does this "too big to fail" thing mean, right? And and so if you can if you can step in, the idea is that um, you know the federal government can step in if things are too big to fail or going to cause a systemic problem, and they have the emergency right to do that. In the grand scheme of things, you know, SVB was was more of a regional bank than one of the largest banks that are out there. At the same time, you know, by having a whole host of companies miss payroll and, and not be able to do things. I mean, that's kind of the ripple effects to it, but that, you know, wasn't at the same time kind of, you know, the, the largest banks out there. So I think kind of understanding, you know, what that means, I think we're probably going to get some more regulations that kind of clarify um, what it is to, to, to be too big to fail or what the policy um, decisions are there. We're going to probably be, look, you know, relooking at what the FDIC insurance limitations look like and and here you know the federal government what they wanted to do was stop a panic right and not have this spread to all the other regional banks and you started seeing the regional banks stock prices really come under a lot of pressure and then speculation of, of who was going to be next and so they took the step to say look you know we're in charge you saw Biden say the same thing you know we're our banking system is safe we're going to do those things but you'll probably see more clarity around that where you see some of some situation like this pop up again, you know, regulation is is not always a prospective thing, as much as a kind of reflective um, item. So I think we'll probably see more things along that particular policy question.
1: All right, thanks for joining us, Nathan. That was all we had for today. Um, thanks again for joining us. I really, really, really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Victor. It was uh, great to speak with you.
1: Great. If you enjoyed this podcast, and would like to hear more, please go to your favorite app and check out some other titles from Legal Talk Network. In the meantime, I'm Victor Lee, and I'll see you next time on the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast.
0: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes.